Welcome to Fellowship Safaris, conversations about people of color and their journeys to subspecialist training in their countries of origin and around the world. Hi there. Welcome to another expedition in the Fellowship Safaris. I'm Jerry Kareyajahe. I'm really excited to have a friend of mine who will be telling us more about himself and what his fellowship experience was like. His name is Martin Biata. I call him Mato. Met him back in high school and I've always trailed a few steps behind him from high school into undergraduate to postgraduate as well. And then there was this fork in the road where he picked his subspecialty while I went in a different direction with mine. I was lucky enough to convince him to speak with me over a virtual connection one Monday morning. This is his story. You really don't want to miss any part of it. All right. So my name or my name is Martin Biata. So my training undergrad in medicine. Uh, done here locally. I did my master's at the same facility after a while, and I did my fellowship training in pediatric cardiology outside the country. So, Mato, what made you gravitate towards pediatric cardiology? First, in the training, not undergraduate per se, maybe in the postgraduate training, uh, we had a deficit in that you'd have a patient with suspected lesion before you get a confirmatory uh, imaging done, you've waited, you've looked for someone to sort you out, and it was taking a bit long. So it's the need that was there that pushed me in that direction. I found mm -hmm. cardiology interesting, or I don't want to say easy so that it doesn't sound bad, but quite honestly, you gravitate towards uh, what you find straightforward. For me, cardiology I found interesting enough to deal with it on a daily basis. There aren't many subspecialists in Kenya, so I wanted to know how many pediatric cardiologists there are in addition to Mato. Okay. In total, qualified pediatric cardiologists are 10 in the country. There mm -hmm. is one in Mombasa, two in Eldoret, one in Kiambu, and the rest are in Nairobi. So that's oh, the wow. total covering all the kids in, in Kenya. For context, Kenya's population is just above 55 million, of which everyone under the age of 18 years comes to a total of about 25 million, just over 50% of the population. We have uh, one in training out mm. of the country currently. There are two doing a, starting like a fellowship locally then they'll do their further studies outside. Let's say three in the pipeline. There is still a huge need based on the sheer number of children who need care, with an estimated number of 500,000 children with congenital heart disease each year, a major portion of these kids being in sub-Saharan Africa. There are very large uncovered regions. You can yeah. imagine if you're in the western side of the country, you have yeah. to make your way to Eldoret. Uh, wow. If you're anything below Nairobi going down, below Machakos going down, you have to make your way to Mombasa. That's really interesting to hear, Mato. 
It's really enlightening because I didn't know this much thought went into your process. How did you get to figure out where you are going to get this training? I know you've mentioned a little bit about following through with your patients here in Kenya as part of sort of like getting your feet wet and practicing. But walk us through how you settled on an institution and what your process of application was. Okay, so in terms of the training, until just recently, there was no local training going on, at least for for any cardiology, actually. Adult cardiology started in one of the local private facilities recently. Uh, Then the national hospital in conjunction with the uh, university is trying a fellowship program that is coming up. So for me at that time, there was no local training. So you start talking to your, your seniors, where did they train? Where would they recommend? Uh, the first thought was to go west. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the, the email communication was not really forthcoming. Then you're mm-hmm. discouraged in that you're told in the west, you want to get a hands-on feel for the patients. There are medical legal uh, hurdles that they're putting in their own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was where is high population, high flow that you get hands-on. So I thought is southern part of the southern Africa, is it possible? Then mm-hmm. I thought, of course, to Asia. And I landed on uh, India because my seniors, many of them had been trained in that direction. And they tended also to refer their patients there for the surgical kind of interventions. So it meant those guys, one, they have the population, two, they have the advances in the field that if you train there, you'd get a hands-on and you'd get to be in the center of where it's all happening. So that guided my choice of going towards India. Now for the facility, I have to talk to my seniors again. It was where would they recommend? And uh, the institution I finally ended up in, most of our earliest specialists actually trained through there. And it was one of those names that even anyone who's not in cardiology will tell you this is the place to go. So I researched into it and I found, uh, luckily or by chance, one of the head of department of that facility used to come on either every two years, once a year, Mm -hmm. or after every two years, he'd come and work with one of the private facilities and run a project for three, four days Mm -hmm. where he would be doing intervention procedures. So that was actually quite an advantage because I got to go see what he's doing. So that just pushed me in that direction. So I got a chance to have a sit down with him. There were about three or four guys who were interested in cardiology. And he actually proposed a write to me. So mm-hmm. I can get your details. Then we guide you through a process of application. So that's my journey into uh, cardiology. So from there, I made my application. So it's applied to the head of department of this facility. And um, he would then talk to their coordinator of uh, studies. And you get a letter saying, approved, this is the fee structure. So my first acceptance letter actually came in 2015. But I only got to go there in 2018. Reason is life happened. Somewhere in between started to uh, go back on that plan and uh, deal with the domestic, um, my domestic situation before being ready to actually go out. So mine was through my seniors, through interaction with someone who's coming from the outside. And then uh, luckily through a direct meeting, I could apply directly and then I got my acceptance. 
Martin is clearly one of those people who seems to know how to turn lemons into lemonade. The acceptance in 2015 was mm. to start in 2016. I had to postpone that plan because uh, life issues. Mm-hmm. So postponed that plan. I now got back into the grind of just trying to make ends meet. So I actually suspended that whole plan for a while. But maybe two years down, I figured, uh, I saw that there was no progress. So I had to think for myself, do I want to specialize? So I think in 2018, beginning is when I saw, I think I, I felt I had stagnated. So I started pursuing a second application. Oh, wow. It doesn't sound like it was easy or straightforward. It took courage to keep going. So I asked how he kept his passion alive while waiting for another opportunity to start his fellowship. So I applied again, same facility. Uh, I think that he also met again with the same consultant and he insisted I push through. Uh, actually, that was 20, end of 2017. And she said, keep, keep writing, keep asking for admission. So when the acceptance came in, that's when I, I took the initiative to join my senior colleagues in their various clinics so that I get a feel as to what will be the demand on that side. So I used to go to the national hospital because that's where they see most patients. And also at my facility at the private clinics, I joined the consultant when uh, the opportunity arose. The idea was when you land there, you're not as green as someone who's straight from school or something like that. It sounds like the apprenticeship process was really important in terms of preparing you for the actual fellowship. It's so important that you mentioned life-lifing, which is a Kenyanism when we say life getting pretty tough for us. Which leads me to my question about funding, because I think for a lot of us, when we're thinking about the next step, funding is one of those big questions. Are you able to talk about what the funding process was like and a pro tip that you learned out of that process? Okay, so the facility that offered me a place gave me a fee structure and it's in dollars. And quite honestly, in 2015, I knew I'm not going to manage this. So part of shelving those plans is because one, there's already quite an amount and that's just fees. You're thinking about upkeep on a a month-to-month basis. Then you look at the pressure in terms of uh, financial resources on this side. You still have to provide when you're not around and it wasn't possible. 2015 was just not going to happen. So in 2017, so that I left in 2018, Mm-hmm. That's when I approached my institution and uh, requested for funding. So luckily, after a bit of back and forth, they agreed mm-hmm. to put the annual fee, then mm-hmm. give me a stipend on a monthly basis, mm-hmm. which was basically bare minimum. Mm-hmm. So that's how funding was sorted. And uh, this is at a point where you're sitting on this side, not knowing what your exact demands will be on the other mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. Now, that's another thing that by luck, I relinquished my position in 2015, but someone was able to go in 2016 to the same facility from here, mm-hmm. a colleague now, and I could communicate with him on a regular basis and then ask, what is, uh, let's say, rent cost? What is an, an average monthly food cost? So that in my planning, it was 
So I need X amount per month, but I need Y amount to add on for whatever I've left on this side. Then put that together and see, is this partial sponsorship I'm getting on this side enough? Or what else can I do? So lucky for me, the sponsorship sorted out fees, which was brilliant, uh, sorted out a stipend, which was their minimum hand-to-mouth kind of situation, but it's better than not having it. And then um, now from there, it was what can I sell off uh, so that I have X amount in case, so that you have a buffer in case you need it. I think one of the things that came out really clearly, even as we continued to chat, was the importance of networks and the information you can get from your contacts and friends who are out there. The information you get from the facility you're going to is very shallow. They'll, uh, they'll tell you there are hostels, there are places to stay in, but they don't tell you that uh, getting a place to stay in out there, yeah. it's not that easy. So mm. if you're given a contact by your facility, you'll be given something very general. Then now you start mailing the facility and start saying, uh, can you get a place? I can give an example. Mine, it was a hostel where the equivalent of about 30,000 shillings per month and you're getting a one-room space, which quite honestly was a bit much. Yeah, And that's just room and you haven't thought, I'm going to eat, will that be a transport cost need? So even when you have someone on that side, their, mm-hmm. their vision of life might be a bit different. My mm-hmm. colleague was there with uh, his family and he was getting support from family. So he was a bit luckier. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you have to know that you're going as an individual. If you're lucky and your facility gives you accommodation well and good, but those are the details you have to keep trying to dig out from where you're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's, what's the monthly cost is, is very fluid, let me put it that way. It's very fluid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you'd rather overestimate than underestimate. Before we move from the funding question, were there opportunities as an international medical graduate to do some extra work on that side? So, so in India, there's no law coming or working outside the boundaries of why you're there. You'll get uh, or you'll apply for medical licensing and it will only allow you to work at the facility you're going to practice in mm-hmm. under the chief consultant, whoever it is. So even his name is on the line. In the past, because I told you the place I went to, uh, some of uh, my senior colleagues were there many years ago. They used Mm -hmm. to actually have an allowance for calls. Now that was scrapped. So by the time I got there, you're not being paid by the facility. So Mm -hmm. you're actually paying to be there Mm -hmm. and paying for your everything else. So you'll do your calls as an unpaid uh, resident. I know colleagues who've been to India and um, their institution offers housing. So those are details that may actually guide one's decision of where to go to. So far, it's been really interesting tracking your journey with you. However, I'm really curious about what the actual fellowship process and experience was like for you. So going to India was a full cultural change, then mm-hmm. I went to the south, which is not as cosmopolitan as the north. So the north are very familiar with foreigners and all the south, not as much. So landing, I, I, I can tell you my interesting experience. Yes, I land, please. I landed there <laughs> like uh, 3 a.m. Landed in a place no idea about. 
uh, you want to exchange uh, currency, you are looking for a taxi, this guy can't speak English, try to translate where you're going, guy says he knows, jump into the car, so you're driving in India at night, no idea where you're going to. So I have to show him a document and hope that he can read it to take me to wherever the hostel is. So he drives there, the door is closed, okay? 3.30 a.m. closed door. He's dropped you off with your two bags, hoping it is the place. So I knock there for maybe five, ten minutes, some guy opens. Yeah. So I tell him my name, show him my passport. Uh, he says he's a night guy, he has no idea. Stay in this room, we'll sort it out in the morning. <laughs> so that, that that was that that was it. You're learning, there's no welcoming committee, there's no guide, nothing. You're here and here are the sights and sounds of India. For the institution I was going to, it was the liaison was um, someone in the dean's office, some, uh, a lady there. Mm-hmm. So she sorted out most things in terms of even the hostel. She gives me a contact to confirm with her. She gives me a contact of the hospital. Uh, bear in mind, you land with your phone while your SIM card is useless. So you have no way to actually communicate. Then you go to the hospital, which it was, you walk asking, where is this hospital? So got to the hospital, then now ask, where is this lady? And you're told that facility is somewhere else, take a tuk So land, uh, get in the tuk go across, across, you're being taken up and down. Yeah. And you get somewhere, you're told it's this place. Luckily, this, this uh, lady is very used to dealing with everyone. She's one was the coordinator for everything academic. Yes. So it's get you registered, get your number, get you what. Yeah. So to get a SIM card in India, you have to have a refer- referee. So you have to get your oh. letter of admission. Uh-huh. Then this lady writes your letter confirming in the facility. Then you're sent to the equivalent of a cash shop outside. Yes. To buy a SIM card. So you leave these documents with this shopkeeper guy. Then you get a SIM card. That's how exact they are. Where are you living? You write the address yeah. of where you're staying. You're academic, which facility, where is your proof? Such. So it was uh, a change from everything. Go look for food. Everybody is talking a different language. The introduction of the process was bumpy. It was necessary. It's something you steal yourself. Go with the flow. If you go expecting a lot, yeah, you'll be shocked and you'll be stressed. Yes. In the facility, it's here's the word. What will you? What will do I expect of you? I want you in the ward for X duration of time. After that, you'll be assigned to this place. This is what it's expected of you. Then you are taken to the ward, introduced to the one guy already in the ward. Here's this guy. He will show you the other fellows, and that's it. Start. Hey, that was orientation by fire. You go with an open mind. Yes. And you go with anything can happen. I know you talk about stealing yourself for whatever comes at you. I have had the privilege of working with you before and I've seen your resilience in many different situations. How did you manage to stick it out, Mato? If it were me, day two, I would have been back on a flight to Kenya. You, you actually think about it. Then I realized my <laughs> account is empty, so there's no I was going. So luckily the group was uh, are not, were not too unfamiliar with having a foreigner. I'd say mm. the nurses was the luckiest bit for me. Fellows will ignore you. 
your the other consultants will ignore you. Meaning, they like mm -hmm. the, the the other fellows who are there. They go there through such an aggressive, competitive means, mm -hmm. so that when you tell them you applied through their boss, they're not seeing how. The nurses yeah. were my best resource. They are very open. They were respectful. Actually, you have never seen nursing staff like that. If it's talking to a patient, you need a translator. It's can I take a minute of your time? Come translate for me. So it, it, it takes a while. The colleague yes. was there before me, took six months to jail. I took three wow. months to jail. So it was, the challenges uh, were, were there. You, if there was time to come back, it's end of the first month. If you don't come back by then, then I think you can hack it. And when you talk about the end, I want to be more specific and ask, how long was your fellowship? It was a two-year period. So there was chaos when getting documentation to leave. There's mm. a bit of friction between our countries, meaning Kenya and India. So it took a while to get my visa sorted. I think Mato could write a book about all his experiences as a fellow. Those <laughs> 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 yeah? experiences no, no one tells you to be ready for. So that was mm. interesting. You have to be a bit uh, brave. You just take it as it comes. With everything that was happening, how did you stay grounded? And what did you do for wellness or even for fun? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, was there any fun? Anyway, I think for the course I was doing, there was so yeah. much to catch up on yeah. that there was barely any time to put your head up. You get Yeah. So it was Monday to Saturday. Saturday, mm -hmm. you're all there until like two, maybe three o'clock. Yeah. Sunday, if you're not on duty, you're most likely either doing your cleaning up catching up yeah. with something you need to read about. Each case is different. You have to know variations of each case. You have to know the management plan, complications. So there was so much reading. There was no time yes. for, we have downtime. When you think back, what were some highlights of the experience? It's a hard landing, yeah? Yeah. But once you start the program, you start gelling, it starts making sense. Mm -hmm. That's when you start enjoying yourself. One mm -hmm. highlight is even the ability of doing a cardiac imaging. That by itself was a change up. You saw a patient, you made a plan, you closed the defect, and now they're fine. Uh, acquiring skills that I didn't have before, it made everything make sense. That's why you went through everything you went through. No one is going to take it away from you. So if you get focused and think like that, then these other things are just part of life. How did you transition back into Kenya? Was it a hard landing or did it have a more natural flow to it? Uh, I'd say again, luckily for me, it was a soft landing. Soft landing mm -hmm. because once my facility agreed to do partial funding, mm -hmm. it means that I have to come back to the facility. I was actually bonded. You get a three-year bond. Your, your place is still there, let me put it like that, which means at the end of the month, you have a payslip. I have colleagues who had hard landings in that you're coming and now sending out your CV to different facilities. So you, that soft landing was extremely lucky. I landed at COVID time. COVID time, no one was hiring. So if I didn't have where I'm coming back to, it would have been a whole different story. So luckily for me, where I was, I came back to, there are senior colleagues. They, are, they see my work or they see me working. And after a year, they signed uh, for the board registration and I got that board recognition after a year. 
then work for another year or two, then I can make an independent decision. Do you want to stay at the facility? Do you want to move out? So for me, it was extremely lucky, soft landing. What's your one piece of advice for someone who's thinking about doing a fellowship? So one is uh, get exposure in the field early. It's all apprenticeship during fellowship. It's all apprenticeship. So that if you have an idea of what's expected of you before you get to a center that is purely focused on that, the better for you. Now, luckily, that's already happening locally. Mm-hmm. And our next step will be actually doing local fellowship. When choosing, let's say, an institution, ask all the questions and ask them early. If anyone has been there, the better for you so that you can actually have a sit down and whoever has been there before can guide you through. If it's a new institution, take the challenge. The fear is always those things, those fear of unknown. There, there, there are many unknowns that you can't even prepare for, but take the challenge. No one, no one will eat you. you. You'll go, you'll face whatever challenge it is, and you learn to adapt. If you've gone through undergrad, you've gone through postgrad, and there's nothing you can't go through, quite honestly. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being so open and sharing your experience because it's so valuable and I've gotten to learn so much more about what resilience looks like. I feel like there have been so many nuggets in this conversation. If it can help the next guy, the better. I'm so glad you stayed tuned. Please get the word out and share it with at least three people. Make this episode like a chain letter. Share it, share it, share it. Come back for the next leg of our safari where we'll be talking about... Uh, it is uh, one year, so I took um, 10 months in one institution and I had electives as well. Uh, I had electives at a children's hospital to learn about the children hearts. And also, uh, uh, I went to a forensic center uh, to learn about uh, forensic arts. I, I thought I'm going to be a musician instead of doctors <laughs> initially. So it was my second job actually. I mean to, to be I mean to be honest, I was even in, in Malaysia, music is my second job. I play in a wedding, I play in a, a party or something, I get paid, yeah. But not that much amount. But um but the problem now is that when I went to Canada, I was hoping that oh I you would have a better music uh, background, music scene. But Unfortunately, because it was during COVID, everything shut down. It takes a village to make this podcast. Strategic and creative direction was done by Josephine Karianjahe and Melissa Mbogwa. The producer of the show is Melissa Mbogwa. Tevin Sudi is the sound engineer with thanks to AQ Studios. The graphic design was done by Benjamin Boyer. And the original music was done by husband extraordinaire Mwakavi Mawewu. This is an Africa Podfest production.